welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Today's message I'm entitling Peace and Unity in Christ. And we're going to be reading a section of uh, scripture from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through to verse 22. So if you'll follow along with the screen, on the screen or on your phone or even if you've got one of those, you know, things made out of paper. <laughs> Some people still use them, which is awesome. Um, with your Bible, that'd be great. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 says, Therefore, remember you, that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both access to God, uh, sorry, to the Father, by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles, And the prophets, with Christ Himself, Christ Jesus Himself, as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And before I get into my my three main points, I guess I'd just like to highlight the first thing that's um, new to us in this book of Ephesians. It's just this, this unusual term, Gentiles. I asked Drew what that meant before the service, and he says, aren't they the cousins of the reptiles? Um, Sorry, Drew, he had a late night, I think. Um, hmm, Okay. But Paul starts off, you who are Gentiles by birth, and it's the first time we come across this this, uh, particular term in the book of Ephesians. Now, originally that word, um, the word that's translated Gentiles in your Bibles, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, simply just meant nations, okay, or nation. Um, But in biblical usage, as you read the Bible, you go on and see that every time it's referred to or used, it's really referring to nations other than Israel, okay, or God's chosen people. So it's talking about the Greeks, or it's talking about the Egyptians, or it's talking about the Romans, or the Africans, or whoever else is out there other than Israel, The Old Testament itself is actually a record of God's special relationship between this one nation, Israel, and himself, okay? And so the unique nature of that relationship, the fact that it was a a nation birthed in miraculous circumstances, the fact that it was a nation that, that God spoke to and delivered the law to, the fact that it was a nation that was driven by prophetic vision, all of these things gave Israel a special place in the history of this world in which we live. Okay, and they had a strong sense of that privilege and a strong sense of destiny that, that accompanied that. 
Unfortunately, it wasn't all beer and skittles or a bed of roses for them because God had given them a tremendous privilege but also a tremendous responsibility. When God approached Abraham, the founder of, of the nation of Israel, ultimately, God said to him, I'm going to bless you and you'll be a blessing to all nations. Okay, You'll be the father of many nations, you'll be a blessing to all nations. And so God had intended to set up this nation, Israel, that they might be a blessing, that they might showcase the goodness of a nation living under the direct headship of God and be a source of inspiration and blessing to the rest of the world. Unfortunately, the Israelites didn't really get that right. And they spent their, their, their history, if you like, vacillating between two extremes. One was to follow after the Gentiles and, and, and live the way that they lived. And the other thing was to, after having you know, reaped the curses of, of the, the law and, and finding themselves without their nation and finding themselves as prisoners in foreign lands and so on and so forth, eventually they got the message that God has called us to be a, an exclusive people, a separate people. But they took it to extremes. And we see that when Paul was writing this particular letter, that the Jews had this attitude that they were superior and to be separate from the, the Gentiles. In other words, you know, most of us in this room, I, I believe, would be classified as Gentiles because if we don't directly have Jewish heritage, we'd be classified as Gentiles. Okay? So when Paul was writing, the Jews saw themselves as better and were separate in the way that they lived. They looked different in the, way that, in the clothes they wore. They looked different in the traditions they kept. They looked different in the types of food they ate. Circumcision, which Paul mentioned, was one of those differences. There were, there were things that, that caused them to think of themselves as above and beyond the general um, Gentile population of this world. Okay, so that's, that's what this term Gentiles means. And this is when Paul's writing to the Ephesians and writing to the Ephesians, in, uh, the Gentiles in Ephesians, he might as well be writing to us. Okay? So I want to have a look at some of the things that Paul goes on to talk about that is really about the predicament of being a Gentile person, a person without Christ. So the first thing, the first point this morning is life without Christ. It says, remember that you, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, he mentions five things there, which I'm going to unpack in just a moment, but I think it's worth just saying this at the start, that it's difficult for us to really grasp the magnitude of what Paul's saying because we live in a, in a world, in a time and a place in this world today that has been radically impacted for the good by the Christian worldview. So it's hard for us to really, as Australians, people living in Australia in this 21st century, to really grasp the, the, the desperation of those that were living outside of Christ. If you've travelled overseas, if you've perhaps been to India or parts of Africa, etc., you may have some understanding of, of the plight of people outside of Christ. But we live in a place where we've been so, um, so affected positively by the Christian message that we, it's hard for us to grasp today. But Paul was writing to a people who knew full well the despair of living in a world without an understanding of a God who loved them, a God that had a purpose and a plan for their life. The sort of world in which many of us take for granted today. You know, things like equality. Equality in terms of our gender, equality in terms of the way that we're viewed under the law, um, the fact that God loves us, even the belief in heaven. These things were not normal. These things were not the natural order of things outside of Christ. These are things which many people in our society take for granted today. They don't understand that it's because of our Christian heritage that these things are taken for granted. Okay, so he reminds these um, Gentiles, these Ephesian Gentiles, five things that they were without outside of Christ. Firstly, and obviously they were without Christ. 
And what he means by that is they were without an understanding or a knowledge of God's promised Messiah. Okay, that's Messiah. That's not the correct way you say it in, in Hebrew, but you know, this Messiah simply was the chosen one of God. And from the very beginning, when, when things went sour for humanity, God began to speak back into humanity about his plans and purposes for saving this world in which we live. And so the Jews looked forward, or the Israelites, same, particularly in the New Testament, we're talking about the same group of people, okay? Um, the Israelites became known as Jews later on. But basically, they had this understanding that God would intervene, that he would himself send someone to step in on, behalf of, on our behalf against sin, against injustice, and even ultimately against death. And that was something that Israel understood. It was something that they anticipated and looked forward to. It was something the Gentiles had no idea about. That's the first thing. They were without Christ, the revelation of a Messiah who was coming. They were without citizenship in Israel. In other words, when it came to the things of God, they were second-class citizens. They could only participate in the things of God at a distance. You know, Gentile people could put their faith in this God of the Israelites if they wanted to, but they could never participate with the closeness that the Jews could, could um, participate with. For example, in the temple. The Gentiles could only go as far as the outer court. They could go no further under the pain of death in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so they were kind of, they could worship this God, they could have faith in this God, but there's always a sense in which we are separated from the fullness of all that this God is calling us to and that he has for us because we are a separate nation. We are not part of God's chosen people. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that there are people without covenants. God never spoke to any Gentile nation anywhere in the world the way that he spoke to Israel through the prophets. Even in the midst of the hardest times that Israel were going through, and you know, we, we read in the Old Testament, they went through some tough times. They brought these things upon themselves. God had given them a covenant that included blessing and curse. If you do the right thing, you'll be blessed. If you do the wrong thing, you'll be cursed. And in fact, you'll be so cursed that you'll end up to the point where you'll lose your nation. You'll be taken off to a foreign land where you'll be lamenting and wishing you were back where you'd come from. <clears throat> it will be so bad, even talks about the fact that you know, there will be times when they'll be forced to eat their own children. Okay, that was the curse. That they, and they lived in that. You can read some of those things in the Old Testament for yourself. But even in the midst of that judgment, they still had the covenant. They still had the promise that God, if they would turn from their wicked ways, if they would turn themselves back to God, if they would repent of their wickedness, God would bring them back into their inheritance. And so even the fact that they were suffering such judgment and punishment only served in a sense to strengthen their conviction that God was alive and well and true to his word. The Gentiles didn't have that. They were therefore without hope. The Jews had a linear sense of history. In other words, they believed they were on a journey. They believed there was a beginning and there was an end and they were somewhere along the journey and that God was watching over them in the journey and ultimately God would wrap things up and ultimately bring about justice. Many of the Gentiles didn't have that view, that understanding, because they hadn't had God communicate them. Many of them believed in reincarnation. Many of them believed in, in nothing. When you're dead, you're dead. All of these sorts of things that, that flowed from this lack of having God speak directly into their circumstances. The Jews had a sense of destiny. They had a sense of being the special people of God. They knew that they had a mission to fulfill ultimately and that God would stand behind them in that mission. 
Like I said, the Gentiles didn't have the word. They didn't have the prophets speaking to them the way the, Gentile, the Jews had. They didn't have a sense of national history. You think about the history of Israel. As we read the Old Testament, we see that there were some amazing things that took place that didn't just happen you know, in the backside of the desert somewhere um, with no witnesses, but they happened, for example, as, as the nation of Israel was, was birthed out of Egypt. There was 10 amazing, miraculous things that took place. A whole nation was turned on its head in order that Israel would be released. In fact, so, so far spread and so wide was the knowledge of that this is a special people, that a chosen nation, a people under God, that you know, when 40 years later, after they'd wandered around the desert due to their disobedience, the, Jer- the people living in Jericho were still fearful. They still knew what had happened before. They still remembered the the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army being swamped. And they lived in fear because of this. Okay, this was a special nation, but no Gentile nation had that sort of heritage. No Gentile nation was birthed under those sort of circumstances. In fact, the Gentile nations as we know them were birthed in rebellion. You may know again in the Old Testament the story of the Tower of Babel where they said, we want to become like God. We're going to build a temple to heaven. And God says, no, you're not. And he mixed up their language and he spread them throughout the earth. And that was the origin of the many different nations. So they were not only that, but they were, they were not only without covenants, but without hope, but they were without God. While the Gentiles lived in the same world as the Jews or the Israelites, their spiritual experiences were very, very different. The Bible, and again, I can't qualify all that I'm saying tonight, t- today. I would encourage you to read your Bible and find these things out for yourself. But the Bible talks about the fact that outside of the light of living with God is darkness. And that darkness is controlled and dominated by demonic powers. And the many religions that are across this world and the, and the, the idolatry that was going on and, and the temples that were worshipped at were ultimately there under the inspiration and deception of demonic powers. Those demonic powers often demanded of people human sacrifice. They demanded degrading practices of of their their worshippers as part of their worship. And so this was the plight of these Gentiles. They didn't know a God of love. They didn't know that God was for them. They were under the hard taskmasters of, of these demonic spirits that were filled with hatred. And the more they could ruin people's lives, the more they could degrade them, the more they could punish them, the more they could control and manipulate them and keep them in darkness and bondage, the better. And you might say, well, I can't relate to that. But the fact is, the outworking of, that, of the Gentiles' lifestyles, the hopelessness, the depressiveness, the, the bondage that they experienced, while we don't recognise that so much today in 21st century Australia, we, know we don't have temples around the place, we're not being asked to sacrifice our kids in the way that they were, nonetheless, there is a silent desperation around about us. People don't know, just as the Gentiles without the knowledge of God could not know whether life was linear or cyclical. They couldn't know whether we're on a destination, we're heading towards a destination, or whether we've just got to go through this thing again and again and again and again. Go from a person, do a good job, come back as a something other, do a bad job, come back as an ant, get trodden on, go through it all over again. They didn't know that. They had no idea about life. And many people today are in the same boat, still don't know about God's plans and purposes for their life. There's a feeling for many of being exposed, of being vulnerable, of being insignificant, of lacking purpose, and all of these things that were 
part and parcel of Gentile life outside of Christ. This is the world we live in. That's why the rates of depression are so high. That's why the rates of drug use and abuse are so high. That's why people are always seeking for the next high. They're trying to dull the pain. They're looking for something to thrill them. They're looking for something to try and keep them alive on this planet a little bit longer or so on and so forth. So you don't need to have idolatry. You don't need to have um, demonic experiences to be in that plight. That's That's the human condition outside of God. I trust you can understand that and relate to that. I trust you're not living there. But certainly, you know, before Christ, I can, I can, clearly remember moments it's lying awake in bed thinking what is this all about what's going to happen when I die I feel alone I feel vulnerable etc 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 so these are all the things that flow out of the sorts of things that Paul was speaking about the good news is that right throughout the Old Testament as we read that we see that there are many prophecies that say no God hasn't forgotten the Gentiles he doesn't hate the Gentiles he actually has a plan and a purpose to include the Gentiles in on his great plan For example, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6 says, It is too small a thing. Speaking, this is one of those messianic prophecies. Okay, so it's where God is revealing something of what he's to do into the future. And this is one of those prophecies that the Jews recognize. This is is about the Messiah. This is about God's chosen one. And it says this, It is too small a thing for you, the Messiah, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, or Israel, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So in the midst of of tragedy, there's hope. And secondly, we then move on to the second part of what Paul was writing here in the passage we're looking at today. In verse 13, it says, But now, in Christ Jesus, we're talking about peace through Christ. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. You know, some people say that's possibly referring to the temple. In the the literal temple in Jerusalem, there was this four-foot wall that, um, as I mentioned, it separated the outer court from the Gentiles, from the Gentiles who go no further. There was literally signs hanging on the wall that says, no Gentile may go past here other than on the pain of death. In fact, in Acts chapter 22 or thereabouts, when Paul was arrested, you know, when Paul was nearly torn limb from limb by the Jews, the thing they accused him was, was of taking Trophimus, a Greek, into or beyond that outer place, into the inner place of the temple. Okay, so there was this dividing wall that Christ was breaking down. Even if it's not that, it certainly would refer to the laws and the ceremonial laws of the Israelites that were, that were mass, starkly different from the ways that the Gentiles were living their lives. Okay, so, Paul, so Jesus breaks down the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. And so basically this passage is talking about peace through Christ, peace between Jew and and Gentile who, like I said, their relationship for the most part had been hostile. And also peace between God and man, who also, the Bible talks about the fact that we are at, in, at enmity with God. We are living outside of Christ. We are living under the wrath of God. We are people, we are, you know, Tone spoke about being dead last week. We are dead men walking. Our fate outside of Christ is sealed. Every one of us has fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has offended a holy God. 
And every one of us only has one end outside of the mercy of God. So how did he do it? Well, firstly, Jesus fulfilled the law through his sinless life. Okay, he knows exactly the pressures that you and I face as human beings because he's lived in a human body like we have. The only difference between him and you or me is that he did it all without ever succumbing to this thing called sin. In other words, he, he at every level, he knew and fulfilled the will of the Father when it came to relating to other people, when it came to speaking words, when it came to acting out actions, when it came to doing whatever it was. He knew exactly what it was, the will of the Father, and he lived in that realm. And so he fulfilled the law. He, Jesus came and said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And ultimately he was up, upholding the spirit behind the strict letter of the law. We see that sometimes Jesus seemed at odds with the law. You know, for example, when a woman was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus, you know, under the law, she should have been stoned. But Jesus knew that there was far more going on than just these Jews being offended by an unrighteous woman. For a start, where was the bloke? And he was able to discern what was really going on and operate according to the spirit of the law. And he released the woman, he, he, he shamed the men, and he, he just sent her on her way, told her to sin no more. Okay, so Jesus fulfilled the law. He paid our price for sin. The Bible talks about the fact that the penalty for sin is death. Every one of us, as I mentioned, is under a death penalty. But Jesus, through his undeserved and sacrificial death, paid the penalty that you and I owed. We cannot, it doesn't matter how much money you've got, it doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't matter how much influence you have. It doesn't matter what you can collect by way of accolades and trophies and titles as you go through this planet. None of it is sufficient to bring you back into God's favour. We are born on the wrong side of the track and we stay on the wrong side of the track but for responding positively to what Jesus has done on our behalf. So Jesus fulfilled the law through his sinful life he paid the price for our sin and ultimately then he was able to nullify the law. Now when I say he nullified the law, I don't mean that you know, now stealing is okay, now murder and rape and all those things are fine in God's sight. No, because these things flow out of God's heart for people. Okay, The royal law is love. So everything that flows out of love is what God is calling us to. But in terms of the ceremonial law, in terms of the, the letter of the law, the nitpicky sort of stuff that the Pharisees were so famous for, Jesus did away with that. He superseded it through himself. And we now know, as we read last week, that it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. This is not of ourselves, it's a gift from God. In other words, God said, the law doesn't work. You will never make yourself right with me through obeying the law. Actually, you were never intended to. The law talks about in Galatians, the law was put us there to show us that we couldn't do it. Because, you know, as, as human beings, we, we, we live the way we want, but at the same time, we think we're good, don't we? We think, oh, if there's a heaven, I'm good enough to get there. But the law is just put there to show us that we're not. When we compare ourselves with the law, we realize that we fall short at every level. And Jesus, you know, came and put some nails in the coffin by really nailing it home. He said, hey, it's not just about killing someone. If you hate someone, you might as well have killed them. It's not just about committing adultery. It's if you look at a woman lustfully, you might as well have committed adultery because it, it, he's showing what was really in God's heart in terms of how we should be relating to one another. Okay, so he abolishes the law but upholds the spirit of the law and he calls us into a relationship with himself, not by fulfilling the law, but by faith. When we recognise that Jesus came to this planet, 
when we recognize he lived a perfect life, when we recognize that he stood in our place and died on our behalf, and we say, thank you, Jesus, we're saved. And we come in, we come out of that place of enmity with God, and we come into the peace, into peace with God, and peace ultimately with one another. And it's not just about, you know, Jew and Gentile. You might think, well, I don't even know any Jews. So how does that affect me? Well, the fact is that the peace of God, because he is our peace, if we have peace with God and Christ is in our hearts and in our lives bringing peace, peace will be flowing down to every area of our life. Christ's peace should and will affect our marriages. That's what I expect when people come to church and their marriage is all busted up and bent out of shape. I expect that if people will connect with God, they will make peace with God and Christ will be their peace that we can see reconciliation in church of marriages. That's when children are estranged from their parents and again, when the peace of God begins to operate in the child's life or in the young adult's life or in the parent's life, we can expect reconciliation. When there's racial tension in a nation, we can expect reconciliation as people get peace with God. You know, what happened in South Africa in the 90s was miraculous. And it was only miraculous because it was a, it was a movement. Yes, it was driven by, by the black population who were sick of white depression and all that sort of thing and the segregation. But they had on the other side of the fence the church, white and black, praying for reconciliation. They had the church acknowledging that we're all equal in God's sight. And it was, won't go into that whole situation. Some people blame the church for the problem to start with, but that's a, that's a misrepresentation of Scripture. All right. Where are we? So the peace of Christ. Seriously, we have no excuse. If we understand that we've been reconciled to God and we could do nothing ourselves about that, and we understand what God's will is for us in relation to other people, surely that should flow out into the way that we reflect others, uh, affect others. And thirdly and finally, I just want to have a look at the fact that we are united in Christ. Um, says in verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Maybe if he was writing today, he would talk about asylum seekers. But we are no longer second-class citizens. We are no longer just pushed to the side. But we are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord or in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul concludes this little passage with three truths pertaining to our unity in Christ. The first thing is that we are one nation. As I said before, Israel was God's chosen nation. Now all who come to Christ are part or by faith gain citizenship in God's holy people, God's kingdom, and have access to every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So we have citizenship in heaven, we have citizenship in heaven and we are united as a nation under God, irrespective of our background irrespective of our culture, irrespective of our gender, etc., etc. Secondly, we are one family. All of us are brothers and sisters in Christ under one Father. 
our Father God in heaven. We are one new people. We are united in Christ. And the outflow of that is that we would love and we would respect one another regardless, again, of gender, of our ethnicity, of our social standing, etc. God just brings the church together and, and blends us together as one massive family of God. And thirdly, we make up one temple. Tone, I think, in the first week that he spoke, he spoke a little bit about Ephesus, and it was famous for being the, the home of the Temple of Diana. It was at one of the seven wonders of the world. And so the, the Ephesians knew something of the temple, or a temple. The Jews, they would have known something of the, the temple in Jerusalem. And so this, the concept of the temple was that it was the place where people went to seek God. It was a place where, where God was said to live. And yet Paul now says, but you are God's temple. You are indwelt by God's presence himself. The Holy Spirit lives in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And so this sense in which God doesn't live in buildings and temples made by men, but he lives in his people. And secondly, in the old understanding of temple, a temple was somewhere where people went to seek God. But the odd thing about this temple is that it's God going out and seeking people. So people aren't expected to come to a temple, but it's the temple goes out on a daily basis and reaches into this world, and God seeks his people. In conclusion, the church, as you are probably aware, began in the Middle East. From the start, it was made up of a bunch of people that came from all over. Every, well, many languages, many societies, and many cultures were represented. For example, in, the, in Acts chapter 2, it talks about people that come from the, the broad reaches of the world because Israel is, is strategically placed. It is, it is kind of like, I mean, you've got to feel for Israel because particularly back in the day, um, when armies marched, if they went north or they went south, they went through Israel. If they went east or they went west, essentially they went through that Middle Eastern area and Israel got affected. Okay, so you've got to believe that there were Asians coming across to Jerusalem and through Jerusalem. You've got to believe that there were Africans coming up and across and through Jerusalem. There were Europeans coming down and around and through Jerusalem. And so from the very earliest times, the church was very diverse. It wasn't white Anglo-Saxon. It wasn't European. It wasn't some of the things that, again, you know, some would have us in Australia to believe that you, know, you, you whites, you're going to impose yourselves on the, on the black people of our earth or you know, the Asians or whatever. No, it wasn't like that. The church was multicultural from the beginning. The church was tremendously diverse from the beginning. For the last 2,000 years, the church has embodied all of the ideals that governments are trying to instill in people and trying to get them to embrace and legislate. You know, the church was inclusive. The church was multicultural before those words were even invented. The church has upheld the value of human life. The church has been a voice for the oppressed. The church has helped been helped for the disadvantage. The messengers of the church, or in the church, the church, us, may not be perfect, but the message is wonderful. The message itself is inclusive, and more importantly than inclusive, it's accessible. The difference with every other religion, it depends on what you can do, it depends on how much you can spend, it depends on who you know. But Jesus says by faith, it's by grace through faith, any person, in the blink of an eye, can go from doubt to faith. 
Any person can recognise what Christ has done on their behalf, having recognised their own problems they had to deal with, i.e. sin. And so it's a beautiful message. It's an inclusive message. It's an accessible message. To paint the, the, sorry, the church and the God of the Bible as exclusive, as bigoted, as intolerant, is to ignore the massive positive impact that Christianity has had on our world and continues to have on our world. And yet that's exactly what many are doing. You may have said it yourself. Shaking our fist at God. Oh, if God's a God of love, how come? Why is there only one way to God that is so narrow-minded, so small-minded, so bigoted, etc., etc.? But that's not the question. The question, in the light of all that we've looked at last week, the fact that we're dead in our sins and transgressions, the fact that we willfully have rebelled against God, the fact that we're doing all that we can to live our own life according to our own will and way. The question is not why is there one way to God or only one way to God. The question rather should be why is there even one way to God? Why is there even one way to God? Because God loves us. And God is committed to every one of us. God is committed to the African. He's committed to the Asian. He's committed to the European. He's committed to the little native living on an island somewhere that everyone likes to say, well, how come that person, you know, surely that's unfair. But God is reaching into the lives right across the world now, and he always has through faith. You only need revelation to have faith, and God can break in with revelation in an instant. He can do it through a a missionary rocking up with the Bible. He can use it with you. He can do it through you talking to your neighbor. He can even do it through a dream. God is is not unfair in this whole deal. God is amazing. God is inclusive. God is wonderful. And God wants his people to come back to him. When we consider that, like I said, I don't know about you, but it's challenging. And I just want to leave us with this challenge, this practical challenge. As we leave this place, and even as we just go out into the cafe afterwards, In the light of this God who has removed the dividing wall of hostility, in the light of this God that is breaking down barriers, in the light of this God who is into unity and into family and into privilege and into living in and through his people, surely there's no room amongst us for division. Surely there's no room for us amongst us to have favourites or to, or to be exclusive in any way, shape or form. I want to challenge us as the church, whether we're the church gathered or whether we're the church dispersed, that we would go out of our way to fulfil the royal law of love, to fulfil God's will and to break down barriers and to step across divides in whatever way that we possibly can, be they racial divides, be they gender divides, be they sexuality, persuasion type divide, whatever they might be, be they social divides, let's just be the the feet and the hands and the mouthpiece of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless.